Please pray with me as we open God's word together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, During our past sabbatical this past summer, uh, we went to London and we visited Shakespeare's Globe Theatre to see King Lear. And you'll know how much my children love Shakespeare, so you can imagine how excited we were. And it was actually my very first time seeing uh, a play at the Globe Theatre. And to add to all that excitement, the title role of uh, King Lear was being played by something of a celebrity. Uh, Her name was Catherine Hunter. She's quite famous in the London acting scene. Uh, She was the very first British woman uh, in history to play the part of King Lear. She played Lear for the first time more than two decades ago uh, to great critical acclaim. And this year, she was back in the Globe Theatre to reprise the role. And uh, that was kind of a big deal. Uh, But then on the day that we arrived at the theatre, there were notices up everywhere that Catherine Hunter had been called away on a family emergency, and the role of Leah that day was going to be played by a stand-in. Not not even really an understudy, because the play didn't have understudies. Uh, It was another woman who who was an actor uh, and had played King Leah before, but she was rusty enough on the part that she had to read it out of the script, Uh, something I've never seen before on a London stage. Uh, And it was okay. (laughs) Actually, it was probably the worst live Shakespeare experience I've had. Uh, Leah was a bit flat and wooden, difficult to hear. The play lasted more than three hours. Uh, The day was viciously hot, and the groundlings, the audience members who were standing in front of the stage, were getting lightheaded. At least a dozen of them fainted during the play and had to be carted out on wheelchairs. Uh, And that part was actually more entertaining than the play. (laughs) Um, But when it was all over, we loudly applauded uh, the stand-in because she'd done a hard job and she'd pulled it off. Uh, We did have a play. The show did go on. Um, And today we want to think about the priests in Exodus, the role that Aaron and his sons had in the worship of Israel. And as I've meditated on the Old Testament priesthood this week, this image of the Globe Theatre has been in my head. And I think the primary lens that I want to use to think about Israel's priests is as the stand-in, right? Uh, They're the stand-ins. They're like that actress who read the part of King Lear out of the script. The priests of Israel were not the real act, Uh, They only pointed forward toward the real act, and as a result, they were very useful to Israel, maybe even essential, but also intrinsically disappointing. Um, They merely stood in for someone much better, uh, the one that the audience had paid to see, and until he came, they stood in the gap between God and people, with enough of the glory of God to be useful, but also enough of the fallenness of man to be disappointing. And that's a call that I find both glorious and also a little bit tragic. Uh, The example of those priests matters to us today because Peter tells us that all Christians are now called to be priests. So our studies in Exodus are going to help us understand what that means in our own lives. Okay, so that's a a roadmap for today. It's quite a lot we're going to cover. We're studying in Exodus chapter 28. You could find that now on page 68 of the Church Bibles. Um, And where we're going is we're going to think about, first, what good is a priest anyway? 
Second, how were Israel's priests called? And then third, who was it that those priests were standing in for? All right, so uh, first, what good is a priest? Uh, And here, we're going to start in Exodus 28, because it's the chapter where we really meet the priests of Israel for the first time. Now, as we read this, maybe the whole chapter sounded a bit odd to our ears. Uh, And maybe you ask, why are we reading this? Uh, Why are we hearing all about their clothes? Why didn't John pick a passage that tells us who the priests were and what they were supposed to do? And the answer is, because there really isn't one. (laughs) Not a short one. I looked hard. There isn't a short passage or a short answer to the question of what the priest did. Um, Instead, our picture of the priests gets built up slowly in many layers over a long time throughout the books of Moses. So then, John, plan B, why not just read the beginning of the story, where we first hear about the priests? And friends, that's what I did, all right? <laughs> that, that's what this is. Exodus 28 is where we meet the priests. Uh, we meet them through their wardrobe, astonishingly. So verse 1 says, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And then off we go for the whole rest of the chapter. 43 verses talking about their clothes. Does anyone really care what they were wearing? Well, yes, we should care, right? Because Exodus cares a lot. And Exodus starts with this. Uh, It's another little hint, isn't it, that these guys were stand-ins, that they were playing a role. Uh, because when any actor steps out onto a, sh- onto a stage in a Shakespeare play, we meet them through their wardrobe, don't we? Uh, we often know before the actor opens his mouth, oh, robe, crown, this guy's a king. Um, and in a similar way, the priestly costume was speaking volumes about who the priests were before they even opened their mouths or did anything. Uh, the costume told people right away that the priests were special. They were set apart for some special work of God because of their expensive and skillfully made clothing. There's no one in the sound booth, but could someone go back there and put the picture back up? It'll be helpful to us. Thanks, John. Um, uh, Verse 2 says, as Taylor told the children, it was made for glory and for beauty. Uh, And in verse 3, we find out that the very best of the spirit-filled artisans were called up to make this costume. Um, The clothes told the people that the priests belonged to the tabernacle itself. As you read through the description of the tabernacle and then the priestly garments, they're all made of the same stuff. They're dressed up to match it. It's gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linens, and it's exactly what the tabernacle itself was made of. Uh, This costume also had a label on it, which if you look down at verse 36, you can find the label. Uh, It says on it, you shall make a plate of pure gold, and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord, and you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. So Aaron had this great big badge on his forehead that said, holy to the Lord. And that was a bit of a clue to the people as to what he was there for. Uh, And then finally, the priests wore the names of the tribes of Israel on their bodies. They they wore them twice. First on the shoulders, in verse 9, on the two onyx stones for remembrance, and then again on the breastpiece, in verse 21, engraved on the 12 precious stones for judgment. So 
the costume told the people a whole lot about their priest, right? I kind of like in Taylor's picture that he found here that there's no face, <laughs> that it's just a costume and no head, because that's kind of telling the truth, isn't it? Like, it kind of didn't matter, the guy who was inside it. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the costume is telling people that this guy is a kind of mediator, telling them he's a mediator. It says he's holy to the Lord, so he could approach God, draw near to God, but he's also clearly representing the people. He's wearing the names of the people on his own person, and so he's bridging the gap between the people and their God. So he's a mediator, and as we read on through Leviticus, we find out a lot more about what he does to be a mediator, and it's got the, these four key areas. First, um, he does a whole lot of animal sacrificing, there was a morning and an evening sacrifice every day, plus extra seasonal sacrifices, plus any others that were needed to deal with specific sins. We learned that the Levitical priesthood was a bloody job. And all of that was designed to atone for sin, to purify the people in whose midst God was dwelling. Uh, the second thing the priests were doing was mediating through prayer and intercession, which was a significant part of their role. Third, they blessed the people of God. Uh, God taught them the words to say. He, they, there was a formula. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And so on. God taught to Aaron. And then fourth, um, the priest taught the people. This was a role that Moses kept for himself until he died. But at the end of Deuteronomy, when he's about to, to die, uh, he hands the priests the job of preserving and teaching God's law. Um, so those were the main things the priests were good for. And they're all connected with this role as mediators between God and and his people. They sacrificed, they prayed, they blessed, and they taught. <clears throat> and on top of that, there were a couple of subsidiary roles that they served in Israel's community. They served as doctors uh, to contain contagious skin diseases, to pronounce people clean and unclean, and they served as judges to rule on difficult cases that were beyond the scope of the town elders. So that pretty much sums up what a priest was and what he did. And notice that so much of that you can get just from what he was wearing. Uh, the priestly role was a very important role, a big role. Uh, we see in Exodus that Moses himself took on at one stage or another all of the parts of it. He served Israel as a kind of priest until he handed it over to Aaron. Um, but then Aaron wears this, this costume, this new costume. And as we look at it, as we look at the costume on the screen, the priest in all his getup, I think we can see even from this early stage, that he's really only a stand-in, right? We look at it and we think, eh, this just can't be the final plan. Uh, this priest needs such an elaborate get-up of beautiful clothes for glory and for beauty. And what's the real reason? It's because he's not in himself very glorious or beautiful. These beautiful clothes are actually hiding the real, ordinary, hairy man underneath. Um, and he needs a label on his head to tell us that he's holy to the Lord for the very reason that he's not in himself holy to the Lord, not without a hefty ritual of consecration involving forces that are far outside his control. So we meet these priests through their wardrobe, and like actors on a stage, their wardrobe's telling a story that's not entirely true, at least not true without some important missing pieces that haven't yet been revealed. This is what God told these men to do, <clears throat> and they were obedient. Because they were obedient to what God said, it worked for now. <laughs> but that poor priest, 
taking days to clean himself and get himself ready and dressing up in all that get up and lumbering around. He's doing everyone a valuable service for right now, but it just can't be the whole plan. There must be pointing forward to something bigger and better. We can see even at this stage that he's only the stand-in. Okay, we can kill that picture. Thank you, Jordan. Um, Second, I want to think about the priestly calling. How was a priest called into this strange job? So let's look back at the text again, back to chapter 28, verse 1. It says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. God is very clear right from the outset who he wants for this job. It is Aaron and his sons, no others. Aaron was from the tribe of Levi, but the other Levites are not invited to be priests, just Aaron and his sons. Aaron's daughters are not invited, just his sons. And of his sons going down through the generations, young men were excluded from being priests if they had any kind of disability, deformity, or disease. So the priesthood of Israel was a most exclusive club. And this is one of several ways that the priesthood of Israel was very different from the cults of the surrounding nations. We know that every other nation around Israel had a very active religious life. They had temples. They had sacrifices. Every other nation had priests. We hear a couple of mentions in Genesis of the priests of Egypt. But history and archaeology tell us that the cults of the nations were most different from the priesthood of Israel. Uh, All the other nations had both priests and priestesses, male and female, not just from one bloodline. And in fact, all the other cults had temple prostitutes as well. And sexual intercourse was a common part of cultic worship. They all offered blood sacrifices, but it was common in all the other cults to include human sacrifice as well as animals. And the humans were almost always children. God is very clear in his law, lest anyone be confused that this is to be another cult like one of the other nations, that it is not. This is profoundly different. That his worship is unique because it's about holiness and not about debauchery. It's about life and not about death. Sacrifices are for sin and not to feed his appetite. And child sacrifice is anathema. Priests are male only, all of one family, obedient to God's call. And we see in their garments they are dressed with a special modesty, including extra undergarments, to banish the idea that there should be any kind of sexual expression to the role. The priesthood of Israel was different. And part of that was that the club of priests was very exclusive. And maybe you look at this and you want to say, it's unfair. How did those guys get so lucky? Or unlucky. (laughs) If you turn the situation around and look at it from the other side, the sons of Aaron, who were healthy, had an unavoidable call on their lives. They couldn't go off and be carpenters or hairdressers. They had to be priests. It was determined from the moment they were born. Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, they had no choice. They were going to be priests. They were called to be these permanent stand-ins. They were called to give their whole lives to the bloody task of sacrificing hundreds of thousands of animals, whether or not they really loved animals, whether or not they really liked blood, to devote their lives to prayer and blessing, whether or not they felt they were any good at prayer, to spend their lives in the nearer presence of God where any mistake could be instantaneously fatal? 
As God warns in verse 35 of this chapter, the robe of golden bells shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out, so that he does not die. Aaron had four sons. Only two of them made it in this job. The other two of them were very quickly killed in the role. Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, they make a mistake. They get some of God's instructions wrong. They offer fire before the Lord in the wrong way. The result is that fire comes down from heaven to burn them alive while, God, while Aaron watched. The priesthood of Israel was a dangerous calling. So maybe not so lucky. It was a precarious life. It was dependent moment by moment on the faithfulness of God and of his people. If God stopped being faithful and merciful, you'd be instantly dead. And if his people stopped being faithful and withheld their tithes, then you'd starve. Perhaps most difficult of all, it was a lifelong calling to a job you simply could not do, where all you could ever be was the stand-in. You would be called to pronounce forgiveness of sins when you did not have the power to forgive sins, to cleanness when you did not have the power to clean, to wear clothes of a majesty that you did not possess, and a badge of holiness that you could not live up to, trying to be faithful and believe in God's plan against the lurking suspicion that the plan was maybe just not enough, that there was some huge missing piece that you couldn't even imagine, that you were standing in for something, but you couldn't even imagine what. It was a good call, but it was a hard call. And I want to recognize from this text that our God in heaven has the right to make hard calls, to call us into his service however he wants to. He has the right to speak over us and tell us who we are. Just like he said to Aaron, you are a priest. Even if that call is hard or unpleasant or unwelcome, we must recognize from this and from many other places in Scripture, that it is God's prerogative to tell us who we are and what we can do for him. And that truth rubs very hard against us today, doesn't it? It rubs hard against our modern sensibilities. We want to tell other people who we are. We want to define ourselves to them and then to chart our own course through life through by our own choice. And we call that freedom. But God's word says that there is no intrinsic human right to self-definition. You do not have the right to tell God who you are or what you're going to do with your life. Instead, he, the creator, has the right to tell you who you are. Maybe that sounds very heavy-handed and totalitarian. But in truth, it's a mercy and a blessing. Because what people are learning all over the country today is that the pressure to create ourselves is overwhelming and actually beyond our power. And what we end up creating is a kind of Frankenstein's monster. It's, we make ourselves a horror, but God in heaven makes everything beautiful. Even what might seem strange or clumsy at first, and in submission to his truth, there is freedom, friends. In yielding up that authority of definition, rightly to God. There is purpose and there is hope. And I call us all to let him create you. Let him define you and commission you, even if his call is to be nothing more than a stand-in, because hope and life are in his call. And that's a truth that we see proven here in the case of the priests. But we do have to wait to meet the one they were standing in for. <laughs> that's when we understand them. 
when we finally meet Jesus. Jesus appeared on stage with no particular costume. He had no benefit of wardrobe or pedigree, but he was widely and quickly recognized as the main act. This is the guy we paid to see. Jesus did not wear a label on his head that said holy to the Lord because his actual personal holiness to the Lord was evident in his life, in his baptism, in his teaching, in his kindness, and in his healing miracles. Jesus didn't wear expensive clothes to tell people he was something special because they could see that he was something special. And he came to do without a script what the priests had been fumbling to do for hundreds of years. And this point is fully and wonderfully made by Hebrews chapter 7 that Hope read for us just now. So let's flip ahead there. And again, I just want to bask in the glory of the real act. Uh, Hebrews 7 is on page 1004. So Hebrews chapter 7, I remember reading this as a teenager and just being totally blown away and wanting to do all this research on who was this guy, Melchizedek. I wish I had a whole other sermon to talk about this chapter. I just want to cover it very briefly. Um, in this whole chapter, the author of the Hebrews is riffing on this prophecy from Psalm 110, verse 4. It's this really odd verse, deep in the psalm. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Like, where does that come from? Um, it's such a strange and obscure verse because Melchizedek was this mysterious priest of the Most High God that we meet in Genesis. If Hebrews 7 had not been written, nobody would have any idea what this all meant, but uh, it's beautifully explained to us here in Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through this Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. We'll skip down to verse 23 here. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all upon the cross when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, Psalm 110, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This explanation from Hebrews affirms and proves out of the Old Testament that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our high priest forever. That means uh, the priesthood is not over. It's now constantly and eternally served by Jesus in heaven. Intercession is not over. Jesus pleads for us day and night at his Father's throne. But animal sacrifice is over because Jesus offered himself once for all upon the cross. How abundantly glorious is the true high priest to whom the whole Levitical priesthood were merely stand-ins. And Jesus elevates all of his stand-ins because they were standing in for him. 
their great honor and their great dignity was to point forward to his eternal, everlasting ministry. So that's just such a brief summary of a huge subject, <laughs> um, but I hope it gives us a decent handle on the Levitical priesthood, who they were, what they were there to do. Um, and I want to transition here at the end to think about us as Christians today, because Peter declares in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, writing to the scattered church, both Jews and Gentiles, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here's Peter, Jesus' rock of the church, and he's proclaiming over the baptized, multi-ethnic family of God the same identity that God gave to Israel in the book of Exodus. He's proclaiming over the church, you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. This is your divine calling. It's a God-given identity for all of us here. And by it, we understand that all Christians who fill with the Holy Spirit, all Christians are now priests. We sometimes call this doctrine the priesthood of all believers. And it comes straight out of Exodus. Um, so let's understand it properly in the light of Exodus. Uh, first, the role of priest centers on mediating between God and people by means of sacrifice, prayer, blessing, and teaching. That's what we saw earlier. Are modern Christians called to do this? Yes, at least partly. We saw that sacrifices are now unnecessary after the once-for-all death of Jesus on the cross. But when we take that news into the world, when we pray for the world to receive it and be healed in Jesus' name, when we teach the humble-hearted to follow in the way of Christ, we impart a blessing and we live into our identity as priests. Second, in Exodus, we see that this idea of a whole community of priests is not unique to the New Testament. This is not a New Testament innovation. It was God's idea from the beginning. When Peter quotes a kingdom of priests, he's quoting from Exodus 19, verse 6. God said that at Sinai before he created the Aaronic priesthood. So God always wanted his whole community to serve the rest of the world as priests, even at Sinai. And that reality did not negate the need for the Aaronic priesthood to come later. There were priests serving the kingdom of priests. And we saw from our studies today that those priests were only stand-ins for the true high priest who was yet to come. So a priest in heaven served the priests on earth as they were serving the community of priests. That's the pattern that we find in Exodus. And I think it's reasonable to expect that this general pattern still exists today. And that all Christians today are being priested even as we priest others. So yes, a high priest in heaven, Jesus. And yes, a kingdom of priests on earth, the church. But also, I would say, still a role of priest in the middle. So let me end by talking about that role, uh, my role. Uh, my title is priest. Uh, it's a fact that I find unfortunate and confusing, uh, since it makes a bit of a mess of the biblical terminology. Uh, the Greek word for priest is hierus. It translates the Hebrew kohen, always used to talk about priests. The word hierus is the word the New Testament uses for all the priests that we meet in the Gospels, like the uh, high priest that we met in John's Gospel today. It's the word that Peter uses to say the church is a royal priesthood. That's hirus. But there's a different Greek word for the role of pastoring a church, which is presbyteros. 
That's really the Greek t- uh, word for my title. It means pastor or shepherd. The Baptists say pastor, the Presbyterians say presbyter. And unfortunately, we say priest. Um, it's an ancient English derivative of presbyteros, but un- understandably, it gets confused with the other word for priest. Um, so for a long time, as a classic British evangelical, I argued from the Bible that there was no priestly function to modern priests. They're just pastors, and the priesthood is of all believers. But really, in the past couple of weeks, through steep studies in Exodus and my reading around that, I think that's wrong. Uh, presbyters are called under-shepherds of Jesus, who is the true shepherd, and as his under-shepherds, we echo his work. And his work, as we just saw from Hebrews, includes being an actual priest. <laughs> Um, So just as in Exodus, Aaron and his sons occupied a middle space between Jesus, who they were standing in for, and Israel, who was a kingdom of priests, so now today the presbyters in the church occupy a similar space between Jesus, our active high priest, and his church, the kingdom of priests. We serve as priests to the priests of God under the priesthood of heaven. (laughs) Uh, We serve by praying for them, by teaching them, by absolving them from sin in Jesus' name, and by feeding them with the Holy Eucharist. And we are also merely stand-ins. Or maybe not exactly stand-ins, because Jesus is present and active now in his role. Maybe a better word is subordinates. Uh, But we share some of the characteristics of the Old Testament stand-ins. We are supposed to point you upward toward the real thing. (laughs) We in ourselves are essentially disappointing. We are not able to do in ourselves the work that Jesus called us to do. I wish I could heal you all like Jesus can, but I can't. I wish I could teach you like Jesus can, but I can't. Uh, No one comes to this church on a Sunday for a transformative encounter with John Hall. Um, I'm really just a stand-in who can't do the work I'm called to do, and I have to live with that. And really, when I think about it, I love that. Uh, I mean, how awful would it be if I was so great and wonderful that I could be confused with our Lord Jesus? It's vital, isn't it, that I be an obvious failure in your eyes? Um, Not that I should sin, but that I'm clearly weak and ineffectual and so much less than my Lord. I rejoice in my own basic disappointingness because it leaves you more in love with the real thing, with your Lord Jesus. It leaves you hungrier to hear his voice, to look on his lovely face and to receive your blessing from his own hand. So as we think about the priesthood, let's together take this message of Jesus, the great high priest, and his power out into this hurting world. Let us serve our friends and neighbors as their priests, which is our biblical calling. And let us not be ashamed that we ourselves are weak and disappointing, because that's kind of the point. Priests are only the stand-ins, but it's a calling well worth living into. Amen.